All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers, and welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that's introspective. And Tari, that's why you've always been the caretaker. Ah, yeah. Oh, baby. Keep, keep keeping this place warm in the winter, making sure no more damage comes from the snow. Drinking ghost juice. Ooh, baby. That's my favorite kind <laughs> of juice. Oh, man. Um, so, yes, this week we're talking about the 1980 Stanley Kubrick adaptation of the Stephen King novel the shining seemed like a good time uh, being that dr sleep is in theaters uh, as of as of this recording dr sleep has just opened nationwide of course mike flanagan's sequel to both stanley kubrick's version of the shining and also stephen king's uh, novel of the same name yeah which is crazy cuz i from what i understand they're very different um, so I wonder how, uh, and we'll probably talk about it at some point, or I guess we talked about it yesterday on Missing Out Monday. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, this was my first time watching The Shining. Yes. I think I had seen the made-for-TV adaptation that they the made one that, for uh, ABC. Yeah, that Mick Aris did with uh, Stephen Weber. Yeah. Which he was a bit closer to the novel. The novel and Kubrick's movie version diverge pretty heavily, especially in the third act. Right. Um, and But I don't remember much of that one. I did remember that that the uh, the hedge monsters came to life. That's all I really remembered. Um, and then uh, I remember hearing people talk about this movie a lot. And that's been my main experience with The Shining is like, oh, man, here's Johnny. Um, of course. Yeah. Red Rum. I think actually my first experience with uh, the concept of The Shining was the Treehouse of Horrors. Yes, The uh, Shining with yeah. Groundskeeper Willie. Yeah. Uh, no TV and no beer make Homer go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you brought this in. I did. So uh, give us a little pitch, baby. All right. So. In 1975, Barry Lyndon came out, which was a movie that Stanley Kubrick put a lot of work into, like he does all of his films. It's a massive artistic achievement, but when it first came out, did not light the world on fire in terms of box office receipts. So for his next project, Stanley Kubrick wanted to make something that was both artistically fulfilling, but also a little more commercially viable. What he did was find a novel by Stephen King called The Shining, hired Jack Nicholson, and made one of the most iconic, respected, revered, analyzed, uh, zeitgeisty horror films in the history of cinema. It's a movie that barely needs any introduction. I really do think it is one of the greatest uh, horror films that exists, and I, I know I'm not alone in that opinion. So much to talk about. Uh, I'm ready to dive in and discuss The Shining. All right. Okay. Look at that. I did it concisely this week. I uh, Yeah, I respect it, baby. None of those three-hour-plus pitches today, sir. <laughs> I applaud you. Oh, man. Guys, Lex is doing so good. I'm growing. 
You're growing so much. Yeah. Look at you, buddy. Yeah. Here's a popsicle. Aww. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, gross. Yeah, it's nasty. <laughs> um, yes, this, everyone talks about how, like, The Shining is a Stanley Kubrick uh, masterpiece, and, and then there's all this stuff about how it was made, and you find out Stanley Kubrick was a monster to Shelley Duvall, um, and uh, how he tried to protect Danny by, like, making sure that he didn't know that it was a horror movie. So it's, like, a lot of different aspects. The, the, the behind-the-scenes of this movie are almost more interesting than the movie itself. Yes, so uh, I guess right up top, how familiar are you with the work of Stanley Kubrick? Um, I've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I can't remember what else he's made. Uh, so he did what? Uh, he did The Killers. He did Paths of Glory. Nope. He did nope. Lolita. Nope. He did uh, Barry Lyndon. Nope. He did Dr. Strangelove. Nope. He did Eyes Wide Shut. Yes. Full Metal Jacket. Nope. Okay. So a lot, a lot that we can talk about in future episodes of the show. I guess I, I, I asked because you, as you just said, you've heard The Shining referred to as a Stanley Kubrick masterpiece. Stanley Kubrick is really one of the only filmmakers that I can think of who's every project has more or less come to be hailed as a masterpiece uh, to one degree or another, with the exception possibly of Spartacus and only because that wasn't his movie from the ground up. That was something he was brought in to take over after, uh, I guess, the first director didn't quite work out for the studio. Okay. But uh, yeah, so that's good for me to know so that later I can I can sort of drag you through this dude's body of work because he 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 earns that adulation. Okay. I, I think I'm not a big Stanley Kubrick fan. I guess my first question then would be, why do you suppose that is? And my, my first guess would be, I do think his work tends to leave a lot of people a little cold. And do you think that maybe has something to do with it? What do you mean by that? Just sort of, it's, it's uh, emotionally distant, for example. Um, no, I think what it is, is that, so there's this concept that I, I talk about Sometimes I don't know if I've talked about it on this show, um, but when I'm doing creative projects, there's a concept of creating content uh, with uh, creating content for yourself or creating content for your audience. Okay. Um, and by that, it's like you create a piece of material that is essentially your own expression, and then people can take it as as it is, and and they can like it and interpret it. But like, really, it's for you. Um, whereas like creating for an audience is taking this, making this piece of content and making it so that it speaks to people in a way that is deliberate. Like you are imbuing your content with uh, a meaning that you are looking to share with others. And I feel like Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick is a, uh, a guy who makes content for himself. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that in doing so and it doesn't feel like he is one to like sit down and be like so here is what i think this movie is about i don't know what he sounds like it doesn't matter american um all right so here's what i think this movie <laughs> yeah, just like is, is what i'm trying to convey yeah. um so everyone i feel like uh, is left to kind of really scoop through what their interpretation of what he's doing is and i think that the only way to really understand his movies is to be Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> um, and so like, I, I feel like this movie specifically is a movie that 
Stanley Kubrick was like, here are my ideas for this movie and here's what I want to do with it. And I'm going to leave a lot of things up in the air and, and, and like, I know what they mean, but like, if you ask me, I'm going to tell you it is what it is. Right. Um, and so I think that for me, uh, it's, that isn't particularly my favorite form of, of, of storytelling. Um, I like my media to have like a, a, I like media that is made for the audience, not necessarily for the, the, the creator. Right. Which, uh, I think is entirely, of course, it's entirely fair and entirely valid for me. I don't know that those two things, and I'm only talking about my personal taste. I don't know that those things need to be mutually exclusive because while I, I absolutely agree that a lot of Kubrick's films feel very much like he's, he's doing this for him. If you like it, awesome. But he's making very much what he wants to make. I mean, right. That's why he's, he was so notoriously almost at times cruelly meticulous. I mean, principal photography on the shining lasted a full year because of how insanely micromanagerially meticulous this dude is. Yeah. But I think one of the byproducts of being so detail fixated and detail oriented is then there is so much that I, as an audience member feel like I can bring to it and then have it, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, have what I am able to bring to it as an audience member reflected back towards me in a way that I get a lot out of. Then I start to feel like, oh, this wasn't made intentionally for me, but somehow it ends up being very, very much for me because it lends itself, Shining in particular, and when we get uh, into spoilers, we can talk a little bit about a lot of the really deep, elaborate theories right. surrounding what Kubrick may or may not have uh, been trying to convey subliminally in this movie. I do think the movie ends up, in a, and a, s several of his works, lend themselves to multiple interpretations. And I'm a very big fan of art that, whether intentionally or not, something I really like about uh, David Lynch's work, for example, I really like that it it lends itself to multiple interpretations equally. Like, you could you could take something out of it and the next person could take something completely different out of it, and neither one of you has to stretch or backbend or or contrive something to make it track. Right. Um, you know. So so, and I, I really like when art is able to do that. Actually, speaking of Lynch, uh, if I'm not very much mistaken, uh, the uh, Stanley Kubrick showed his crew Eraserhead uh, in preparation for the shining as a way to indicate the kind of, uh, general tone of creeping dread he wanted the movie to have. Okay. But I'm a big fan of art that can do that. And so that's maybe what I mean when I say, I don't think art for the artists uh, versus art for the audience need to necessarily be mutually exclusive depending on what it is you're looking to get out of art. Right. Okay. I don't know if any of that actually tracked coherently, but I knew what I meant. <laughs> no, I mean, I get what you're saying in that, like, something that is made for, for, for the artist can also resonate with the audience. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like that if, if I, Stanley Kubrick, made this for me, then it's inaccessible to other people. It's right. more that, like, um, and I also get the idea that, like, having art that lends it like doesn't answer all the questions lets other people speculate and, and really like allows you leaves room for you to bring your own experience yes um and that is something that i think the the movie has going for it that the book 
doesn't accomplish in quite the same way. And that's not a failing on the book's part. The intention, of course, was very different. But there is a lot more ambiguity in Kubrick's movie due to the ways in which he departs from the novel, the way he largely shies away from making the supernatural elements of the book explicit, for example. And I I just find that to be a really, uh, really effective choice. And it does then open the story up to more possible interpretations that also maybe hit a little bit closer to home than, say, ghosts, literal ghosts. I mean, I guess so. Uh, well, again, it's tough to, I mean, people very broadly know what The Shining is about. I right. would assume at this point, just because it's been such a massive part of pop culture forever. But for example, the character of Jack Torrance, the character that uh, Nicholson plays in the movie, uh, in the book, you get a lot more of his inner monologue, of course, and you get a lot more information about his his struggles with alcohol, for example. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot more of that made made very, very explicit, whereas, of course, it's there in the movie. Yeah. But nowhere near as uh, as prominent a feature of the movie as it is of the book. But in either case, you've got a man who uh, is struggling with addiction, right? So he's already struggling with a part of himself. So in the book, the the sort of malevolent supernatural forces are, are a far more, uh, let's say, influential presence than they are in the movie, where you get these spectral figures occasionally. Yeah. But in the movie, I think it is a lot more ambiguous as to whether or not these are actual, uh, literal, uh, spiritual presences or if they are manifestations of things that are happening within Jack, right? So, uh, whereas the ghosts in the book, right, the spirits in the Overlook Hotel, those are spirits. Those are yeah. definitively spirits. Right. What's going on in the movie, and Kubrick talks about uh, something that fascinated him uh, about the book that he saw, was like he he believes he's got this philosophy that there is this dark sort of rotten part of the human personality. And that is sort of this internal corrupting force that's driving Jack's descent into madness and chaos versus something that is more external, right? You follow me so far? Yes. Okay. So the internal forces to me are a lot, for example, a lot scarier than the idea of, of, you know, ghouls and stuff preying on people's emotions because the, the, it's the reality of it. Gotcha. Right. And so that's what I mean when I say there's a wider range of interpretations there because there is that ambiguity. And that's what I mean when I say a lot of what you can bring to it as an audience member might generate meaning for you personally that hits closer to home than say literal demonic possession. Right. Does that make sense? Um, yes. And I feel like I want to I want to comment upon it, but I also, it will take me into spoiler territory. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to drop the spoiler wall because um, I have a lot to say about Jack. Um, and so uh, this is your chance if you haven't seen The Shining to, to jump off, go check it out. It's on Amazon. It's on Google Play Store. It's on YouTube. Like, uh, and by that, I mean like YouTube for monies. Um, so you can rent it in a number of places. Yeah. Um, if you have Shutter, I believe it's on there as well. They just put out just the past couple of months a really amazing new 4K restoration on physical media. The movie looks incredible. So if you've got a 4K player, I can't recommend it highly enough. They did an amazing job cleaning this movie up. Nice. Uh, so yeah, guys, check it out. Um, 
And if, while we're here, make sure that uh, if you haven't done so, subscribe to get this in your feed every Tuesday. Um, and then we also have our Monday show, Missing Out Mondays. So uh, subscribe uh, while you're at it. If you enjoy what you're hearing, make sure that you uh, leave a rating or a review, um, which helps us get to the top of the charts. And in doing so, uh, it helps other people find this podcast because everyone knows the most potent form of marketing is word of mouth. Um, all right, so we have uh, stalled long enough. So if you haven't tuned out from now, uh, you're about to get spoiled, baby. We're going to talk full, full shining. We're about to shine all over this place. Um, so we'll be back with spoilers right after this. All right, so let's talk about Jack Torrance Nicholson. Okay. Um, so, like, I know that uh, Jack. Uh, Jack was a big contention point for uh, Kubrick and King yes. because in the book, uh, I, I don't think his name is Jack in the book, is it? Yes, it's still Jack. Okay. Um, he is uh, more of an everyman. He's a more sympathetic character. Yes. Um, Stephen King suggested someone more in the vein of a John Voight. Right. Whereas uh, Kubrick was like, nah, bro, this is going to be a creepy motherfucker. He's going to be so jerky from the top and he's never he's going to go full jerk by the end. Um, and so I, I, I found it very hard to connect with this character. We've talked on the show before about how I find it hard to I, I'm not a giant fan of like unlikable main characters, though he is also the villain of the of the feature by the end. So I'm not really supposed to like him. Right. Um, but I feel like the, the, the likable protagonist character, if there is one would be Danny, certainly far more than Jack. Yes. Um, Danny and, Sh- and, uh, Wendy, Poor Wendy. played by Shelley Duvall. Poor yes. Shelley Duvall. I know. We'll, t- we'll talk about it. Yeah. But I-, I get what you're saying. And yes, that was a, a big, one of the first points of contention for Stephen King when Kubrick was going to be adapting his book. I, Get I get it. I get why people who are big fans of the book have issues with the casting. Uh, I feel, though, it isn't as egregious a misstep as some people seem to to feel. Uh, although, of course, that performance is, has come to be widely praised. It's a very iconic performance. I think he's fantastic in the movie. But I do get, if you're a big fan of the book, that's, yes, uh, on the surface, that is a departure from the Jack that King wrote but having read the shining for the first time relatively recently i, yeah. I kind of grew up with the movie but hadn't read the book until just recently i feel like in the book you have this opportunity to really get inside jack's head for me as a reader it felt very much from pretty early in the story that here is a man who is very obviously cracking but not obviously on the surface is that's the key difference, right? Internally, when you get his internal monologue, you see this. Now, this is a dude who's building towards a big snap. Okay. Now, of course, I know the story of The Shining, so maybe I was just projecting my foreknowledge onto it. But it seems pretty explicit that n- not everything is completely right with this dude from the beginning, but it all plays this inner monologue. So none of that's on the surface. None of that is what the other characters are seeing. In the movie, you have not only far less time to tell your story, but you also don't get the benefit of that inner monologue as well. So I am not opposed conceptually to casting somebody like Jack Nicholson, who does have a little bit of a sinister quality to him, even as he is engaged in uh, pleasantry and civility and stuff because right. we don't get to build all of that inside the character's head. 
interesting. So for me, it's not even the the issue of like Jack Nicholson being cast because I've never read the book. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start there in that like the, everything I know about the book, it is from research and like other people's opinions. Um, my main issue is that like we weren't really front loaded with a lot of his his issues were mostly front loaded with how inconsiderate he is. So like he, we, we meet Jack and, and uh, this will be my, my quick recap for anyone who hasn't seen the movie in a, in a while. Yes. Um, but we meet him at this job interview and he's like, yo, I don't mind uh, staying at this place for, for five months. My family doesn't mind either. Yeah. They'll oh, love it. Also. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Somebody died my wife's going to love that shit. Um, and so he drags his family up to this hotel um, just so he can work on writing projects. And he uh, is procrastinating as much as he can because he has no good ideas. And his wife is trying to be like, well, you know, you should just get in the habit. And he's like, bah, 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 bah. maybe you just get in the habit of writing. What? You don't know what I'm talking. You don't, you don't know what it's like to be me. Um, and every time that she tries to support him, he uh, treats her like shit. And then um, uh, eventually after uh, Danny gets hurt, she blames him because he at a previous point got really drunk and dislocated Danny's arm um, on accident. I could assume- Ambiguous question. You know what? I could believe it was accidental, but does that make it that much better? No. No. Um. And so then after that happens, he uh, he basically that sends him on the other on the edge because he felt like he was being held accountable for his past actions. Cancel culture in action. Hell yeah. Um, And so then he essentially breaks Mm -hmm. and um, he starts seeing things and uh, he eventually dives into madness. Um, so that's, that's Jack's character in a nutshell in that, like, uh, he's more like hashtag hack Torrance. Am I right? His, his writing's bad. His writing process is bad. Um, and also he doesn't know how to be a good parent or husband. No, not at um, all. Regardless, regardless of how much we are meant to take as literal in terms of, uh, ghosts, messing with him or not right he's still not a particularly good husband or father no like he's he's really shitty to his son like even on the way there his son's like i'm hungry and he's like you should eat your fucking breakfast you <laughs> piece of shit <laughs> throws him out the car window yeah. <laughs> um and and it feels like he wants to be a writer but he doesn't have the like discipline to do so and he blames it on external forces rather than his own internal lack of, of motivation mm-hmm. um, and like we get a little bit of uh, I don't remember exactly what he said in his like tirade at uh, at Wendy where he's like you, you, you want me to be a fucking something or other like basically um, projecting his his insecurities on her where he's like i can't there's no nothing for me out there i gotta be a writer otherwise i'm just gonna be a nobody uh could have been a contender or whatever yeah um and so we get a little bit of i just wish it was more front-loaded that like he had these bits of insecurity and and then it was just enhanced while he was there whereas like we get it 
past the point that like we can even be a little bit sympathetic towards him and we get it when he is in the midst of berating his wife and so it's like everything you're saying is negated by the act of what you're doing right um so i found it really tough to like deal with this jack character because he's he's every bad writer in media and also in life like you everyone who especially living in la has that friend who's like you know i'm writing this thing and you're like oh cool are you writing it and he's like you know like it's all just concepts right now you know and it's like oh cool do you want to have a writing session and they're like "Ooh, i'm so busy ah oh, boy i'm so busy i can't write it, well, it's like that but then that same person gets really bitter and angry at everybody else because they're not making more progress on their thing right yeah like i could i could kind of let jack off the hook if he was just sort of fucking awful he's supposed to be writing he's not on a deadline or anything this is just a project he's undertaking for himself right uh like 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 kubrick possibly he's just creating art for himself the artist and stuff. right uh clearly is he just wrote all work and and no play makes jack a dull boy uh many 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 pages and by the way they actually did have to type because every single time uh, Shelley Duvall pulls one of those pages down, like that page is done. Yeah. So take after take after take, they had to have enough pages of that all typed out and stuff yeah. uh, so that they could go through that. But clearly, if that's all he wrote, he's clearly writing for himself, the audience. <laughs> he's not really writing with uh, or himself, the writer. He's not really writing with the audience in mind. Um, but I could almost let him off the hook if he was just fucking off and, and instead of writing, if he wasn't taking all of his bitterness and anger and projecting it onto his wife and his child. Right. Like that's the part of it that is beyond, like that's the part of it that takes him from being like, yeah, every third writer you might know to like this, this dude maybe, may, maybe shouldn't be around people. Right. Especially not women and children. Yes. Um, it really like, I think the, the big knife turn for me, and the moment where I was like, oh, he's despicable was when he returned. We referred to his wife as a sperm bank. And I was like, oh, yeah. And that, oh. that, by the way, is pretty early in the movie before he's really uh, meant to be descending into madness. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, just that's just him. That's just Mr. Torrance. Mm, yeah. Yum, yum, yum. Mr. Torrance. Hack Torrance, <laughs> as I call it. <laughs> But no, he is certainly in the movie. He is certainly, uh, it's clear that he's not a great guy on the surface. Right. Uh, uh, far, far earlier in the story than, than that becomes clear in the book, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and, and so that being the main, like, story differential beyond the supernatural stuff, like, what do you feel are we meant to get from this character? What is it that people kind of are able to project onto Jack as a protagonist antagonist. For me, it is less about approaching Jack as a protagonist. It is really more about uh, viewing him as the antagonist of the movie, right? Like it is obviously Jack Nicholson is the biggest star in the movie. He he's the, he's sort of the, the fixture around which the rest of the movie rotates. Right. But if we have a protagonist, really our protagonist is Danny. And I believe uh, to an extent we're really meant to be viewing Jack Torrance in the movie through the eyes of his wife and his son. That's what he is for all intents and purposes. He's the monster in this movie. Right. So for me, especially if we're, we're going to follow the, the sort of thematic thread of once you strip away a lot of the more explicitly supernatural elements, you're left with a 
portrait of a man whose whose demons are are inner. They are literal, you know, uh, yeah, inner demons. And it's these in, internal forces. But forces is even too nebulous a word. It is him. It's not. It's not external forces uh, pushing him. Right. It's not outside of his control. When you strip away those supernatural elements, it's a guy who could be making other choices and isn't because there is something so fundamentally rotten and broken and damaged inside of him. And that goes back to what I was saying before, where, you know, if you have a family member that's an alcoholic or that's abusive, for example, you may see some of that in the relationship Jack has with his wife and kid, for example. Right. So, so, and that's just one example of, of several potential. But for me, that, that is more how I approach the character of Jack Torrance in the movie. In the book, because you get so much more inner monologue, you get to take that journey with him a little bit more. Yeah. But because you don't have that, to me, the way you, the way I approach that character as an audience member is through the eyes of his wife and, and child, through the eyes of the people he is victimizing. Because that, for me, tracks the most consistently with sort of my my preferred thematic interpretation of the movie. And it, it's what makes it the, the, the scariest, the most immediate, and the most visceral because it is so uh, t- terribly recognizable. Right. I get that. Um, and I can, I can definitely track that perspective on it. Cause like we both talked about there, we, yes, we get that type of character cause yeah. they exist in real life mm-hmm. and that's what makes them scary. Yes. Um, I mean, and, but, and I feel like Shelly Duvall slash Wendy is the, one of the most like relatable characters and, and one of the most like you see her going from so like adorable and sweet to it looks like someone just like threw her out back and punched her for like six days. Oh, not for nothing. I think the the most harrowing moment in this entire movie, uh, it, it's not it's not an axe murder. It's the scene very early when Wendy is talking to the doctor and it's telling the story about how Jack dislocated Danny's shoulder. Yeah. And is essentially apologi- like apologizing for Jack and making right. excuses for Jack. And like that's a portrait of, of so, so, so many women who have been locked in marriages with an abusive husband. Yeah. Having to make apologies and try and excuse away their husband's abusive behavior. It's that, that to me is the darkest moment in the entire movie because oh, yeah. it is so real. Especially because you, in the story, the event took place like two or three years ago. Right. And then she's like, and he's been sober dot, dot, dot for five, five months. months. Yep. Um, so like you could imagine that in the last two and a half years, he's been like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I promise I'll never take another drink as most people who are dealing with alcohol addiction will say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if, if you're not actively, um, on top of your shit, like, then you will fall back into it. Yes. Um, and it sounds like every time he says it, she she accepts it as truth and they try to move forward. And so we've got five months and now they're going to spend another six months together just like in, at, at least from uh, their understanding, a dry environment, which is nice. Well, and it, it is a dry, right? Like they, they make it clear, uh, explicitly clear, like when he, when Ullman's giving him the tour of the hotel, right. they sort of, 
pack off all of their alcohol reserves. So the, the environment's like, you know, hope you brought your own supplies because there's no alcohol at this hotel. Right. So he drinks that ghost juice. <laughs> um, and it, it feels like uh, sh- they are even more kind of trapped in this situation in that like it doesn't seem like Wendy works. Like it seems like her full time job is taking care of Danny. Yep. Um, and so like Jack being the breadwinner, like they have to kind of follow him wherever he may go, though he could just send them money and they could just stay at home. And this whole thing would have just been him, I don't know, like flailing around an empty hotel room, jerking it the whole time. Although he, it's <laughs> a great two hours, uh, <laughs> but, but actually, no, he probably couldn't have sent the money, right? Because if the storm was going to be that severe, there'd be no way to get the money out to them through the mail. He could try, I doubt he'd be able to even wire it, right? They've got the radio and that's about it. He could now, of course, at the end of that, that tenure, take the money to them, but how have they been putting food on the table for like five months? I mean, technically they could have just uh, had the money sent directly to his home because they would have needed it. He wouldn't have. That's a good point. Because like all the supplies he needs are at the hotel room. Yeah, that guy's a jerk. Yes, he's an asshole. <laughs> he like he should have just left his, like especially if his intent was to to have some seclusion and write on his own, then he, but I guess him being the guy he is he's like well, but then who's gonna cook for me right. jack torrance the master of my home who's gonna suck my dick <laughs> um and so i i guess he like had to bring them right um because they're the ones who entertain him and give him food and stuff um <laughs> you know he said it don't even yeah in the car loudly <laughs> and like kept one hand on the wheel but made a big point of turning and looking at his wife and turning all the way around and looking at his son yeah exactly yep. and his, his son's like what does that mean and he's like should I eat your breakfast <laughs> throws him out the window again <laughs> it's like the third time he's had to stop the car walk all the way down the mountain and go grab it. Uh, um, but and so now I feel like having talked about all that, it's, it's time to talk about Shelly Duvall and that poor thing. Yeah. So a uh, big, big part of the story of the production of this movie is that uh, allegedly in service of helping generate a more visceral performance from his actress, Kubrick was, uh, cr- I'm trying to think of a better word than cruel. He was being a her. shithead. Yeah. I mean, he treated her pretty, pretty poorly. Yes. Um, and it's like to the point where her, her like hair started falling out. Like she was, she was physically sick for months. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was no good. No. Um, and she's such a sweet lady. She seems like a genuinely nice person. And she seems like, uh, there's, um, on the physical, most of the physical releases for the past sort of several waves of physical releases of The Shining have on them a half hour behind the scenes documentary that uh, Vivian Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick's daughter shot on the set of The Shining when she was about 17. And it's really interesting because you get to watch, for example, uh, Stanley Kubrick directing his actors. You get to watch him being an asshole to Shelley Duvall once yeah. or twice. But there's an interview that uh, Shelley Duvall gives and it's clear that they had already shot the movie. And even after that treatment, it was, all, it was fucked up. It was almost like the scene where Wendy's making apologies for uh, Jack's behavior. Yeah. She was basically talking up so respectfully, like, no, like he, he really pushed me as as an actor and like i learned more 
working on this picture than I had all all my previous movies and stuff. And like, she just seems so nice and professional and generous, but it was a little like, no, I just watched the foot, just a little teeny sliver of footage of this dude being a dick to you. Yeah. And we've all heard the stories. I mean, she didn't know at the time that we'd all know the stories and stuff. Right. But it was, it was a little unsettling. I mean, and I'm sure she meant some of it, but it all, it really felt like apologetic. Yes. I mean, I would say that like she, she, she knows she wanted to work after this. Well, movie. right. You can't go and, on there and be like, that guy's a dick. Right. More like Stanley Hubrick. Yeah. 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 Pubricks. <laughs> yeah. <you> <laughs> that's, that's the one that's um, the, you hear the cameraman be like, that's the one Shelly. And she's like, yeah, she did it. I did it. Serve that motherfucker. She's like olive oil, bitch. <laughs> Um, so like I get, I definitely get her being like, all right, in public, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, sing Stanley Kubrick's praises because uh, he's Stanley Kubrick. Right. Um, no, I know. It's just, it's, it's a bummer. And this too is, is where like, and we're having this conversation as a culture far more now about how there's that, there's that trope of like, uh, the, like a real life trope of the, the artist who's like, he's, he's a genius and he's uncompromising in his vision. And so if he treats everybody like shit, that's just part of his process. Right. Look on the one hand. Yeah. I do think Stanley Kubrick was that, that much of a genius. Uh, I really, I really do. And, and I, I'm far from alone in that opinion. However, bro. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've had and been a, a part of conversations where people are talking about the quote unquote brilliant jerks. Yeah. And it's like, but at a certain point, like being brilliant or being a genius also means that you can master soft skills, like interpersonal uh, communication. I would think if you've got that over other people, if you want to put it that way, that's kind of a gross way to put it. But if, if you have those, those superlative qualities, if anything, you'd, you'd think you'd want to be that much nicer to other people. You would think like but, it's better for you ultimately. Like more people are gonna, even if you're just doing it to manipulate folks into doing <laughs> what you want, you're going to get your way more often. Uh, more flies with honey than with vinegar and stuff. Right, of course. Um, but also, I mean, we as a society for a while were heralding that kind of thing. We were like, like, and and I think part of it is in the the current conversation because. Like we have so many of those archetypes in media yes. that we it's starting to really like bubble to the surface about like the people who herald these types of figures and don't see the flaws in them and really only see the like genius and take it as their their uh, calling card to be like, if I have if I'm going to be smart, I have to be an asshole. Everyone is in my way of whatever I'm trying to accomplish. Right. And it's like, no, guys, like really look at what the effect these people have on the people around them. Yes. Um, so I, I hope, and I assume that Shelley Duvall is living a wonderful life. Um, she's alive, right? She is alive. I haven't seen her in quite some time. Right. I think she's retired, living, living good. Um, she's probably talked to her therapist about her time doing the shining and is on the other side of that trauma. And it's just, living that good life this is my hope for you Shelley Duvall if you're listening I really hope you are living someone the best life someone's gonna tweet us something real upsetting about how she's doing um I hope not but this is this is by folks by the time you hear this I guarantee one of you will have sent us a tweet that will upset us <laughs> well if that's the case 
whatever it is, there's still time. The world isn't over yet. Uh, I hope the best for you, Shelley Duvall. Um, so, <laughs> um, I now want to talk to, about Danny. Yes. The other character who is named after their original uh, actor. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, this is uh, Danny Lloyd playing Danny Torrance in the movie. Uh, they did uh, they did a big search to find a kid that not only could could act the part but apparently who had a way of speaking speech patterns that were somewhere between Nicholson's and Duvall's. Ah, interesting. Because that's the kind of shit that Stanley Kubrick did. Um, he's a freak like that. Yeah, he's crazy. Freaky bitch. Yeah. The K in Kubrick, both Ks in Kubrick stand for know this. I'm a freaky bitch. <laughs> oh, damn. More like Stanley Dubrix. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> he's so freaky, he's doing. All right, okay. That's enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, Danny, the, uh, Danny Lloyd, very adorable kid. Yes. Um, very convincing actor i like that he didn't know he was in a horror movie until he was in his teens um uh which makes me happy i also like that he was so protected like kubrick like there was a a scene i guess that he was that uh had horror elements and so they replaced him with a doll just so he (laughs) wouldn't be in the scene oh Stanley Kubrick, you're insane. It's it's interesting too because in that in that half hour documentary, uh, there's footage of him directing Danny Lloyd just for for a couple of moments. But it's when it's a sequence where Danny's running down the hall from from something, yeah. And Kubrick's just like, "You're running, you're scared, you're scared, you're scared." Oh, that was so great! And like, and then I'm trying to like, what did they tell him if anything that he was meant to be fleeing from? If he right. had no idea, why is he scared? But uh, it is. It's it's sort of a sort of the inverse of the way he treated Shelley Duvall. Right. It's like let's make sure that this kid is getting all of the love that I'm taking from her, all that I'm <laughs> ripping away from her soul. I'm going to funnel into to the way I treat this kid. Yeah. Um. I I really liked his his like Tony voice, the like croaky um uh, thing he did. Uh, yes, that was really well done. I'm sad that we don't get at any point, any explanation about Tony. We only get like more questions. I, without, we don't in this movie, uh, without going into do it, any kind of, well, without going into any kind of spoilers for, for a movie we're not talking about, uh, we do get a little more information about that in Doctor Sleep. Okay. Well, I know that like in so in the updated version uh that was the made for TV movie that I had seen. Um and maybe this is spoilers for a movie that I we haven't seen, but um Tony which is done a bit differently ends up being um Danny from the future who's helping him in the past. So we we get yeah, That's right. that um, so that's the only interpretation that I have. That is not how they explain it in Dr. Sleep. Um, interesting. Okay. So, um, that's the only explanation that we get. And I think that's an interesting interpretation. Um, but it's not necessarily like 
a, a thing that is in this movie. Right. Um, in this movie, like at first we are to believe that Tony is an imaginary friend um, because that is what we are explicitly told. And then Tony does a thing where he's like, yo, I'm about to predict the future, motherfucker. And he does. And you're like, oh, shit, what is Tony? Does Tony know the future? Is he a manifestation of something within Danny? Um, like, what is it? Well, that's the thing, right? And it, be- it becomes very ambiguous because the way, for example, the way that he's able to communicate with O'Halloran without speaking, uh, that would seem to indicate that there is something greater than the mundane, the normal, the everyday going on. Right. But at the same time, if you look at the movie through the prism of, for example, most of the the spirits you see in the movie might just be manifestations of Jack's subconscious, uh, the the behavior of Danny, the, the creation of Tony as sort of an imaginary friend, like all of that could be a way for him to essentially cope with the trauma of having an abusive alcoholic father. But the fact that he is able to communicate non-verbally with right. O'Halloran get, makes all of that very ambiguous. Just like a uh, few people have pointed out one of the many, many uh, clues, quote unquote, that people point to to explain what their what their perceptions of the movie are, uh, to, to justify them, to validate them. Somebody pointed out that I believe every time Jack is talking to one of the quote-unquote spirits of the hotel Uh there's a mirror or some kind of reflective surface uh, that he's looking in the direction of Uh, even when he's in the locked storeroom there's a sort of silver like metal reflective big door yeah what makes it ambiguous is that outside of the presence of something supernatural there's really nothing that explains how he got out of the locked storeroom but that aside, all of it could very easily be he's looking in, in the mirror and what's being reflected back at him is just a manifestation of his own fucked up psyche. Right. But the getting out of the locked storeroom makes it completely ambiguous. Right. Um, I So the whole thing, and I guess in a second we'll get into theory corner where you talk about all the different crazy theories there's then there's honestly there's not time for us to go down (laughs) all of these rabbit holes but we'll we'll hit a couple of them because there are some really popular i'm gonna say borderline tinfoil hat interpretations of this movie there's a documentary that I, i definitely recommend because it's so much fun um it's called room 237 yeah named after the the room the sinister forbidden room in the overlook hotel yeah uh, in the movie and it's it's all about all of these theories and pointing to all the different again quote-unquote clues that can be found in the movie about all the different messages that kubrick might have been trying to convey right it's an allegory for this or that whatever thing is now i don't necessarily believe that all of those things are really there yeah but kubrick was just detail fixated enough just absolutely out of his mind meticulous enough that i'm open to it as a possibility (laughs) i mean but i think it is another example of an artist being like i think this would be cool and then giving no explanation so everyone's like it's deep it's got to be deep let's let's find out um but like i think the main thing that the main thing i want to get kind of your interpretation of is the the way that the movie ends is we jack dies of hypothermia and then we get a picture of him 
1921, which I think has either has it has a couple different uh, interpretations. One could be that now that he has died on the premises, he is now a part of he was, the, right. he was like absorbed by the overlook. Right. Or it's that like Jack somehow is like a reincarnation of another Jack from from previous or that like he uh something like that um, <laughs> so so i feel like i feel like you could ride with the he dies and is essentially absorbed by the hotel right uh, also this is one of uh two major ways the movie diverges from the book well one being and we haven't talked about uh dick o'holler and really the scatman crothers character in the movie yeah who in the book survives in the movie, spoilers, he gets an axe right to the chest as soon as he gets to the hotel. Yeah, it, that, that just a side note, that was probably the biggest bummer of the whole movie. Oh, yeah. Because you meet him and he's like, he gives you his exposition about the, uh, about the Shining. And then you like follow him as he's trying to get back to the, the Overlook. And you're like, oh shit, he's about to do something cool. And then immediately walks in and dies and you're like why why did we follow him doing all this stuff why did we see his naked girl posters at his apartment if he was just going to show up and die i mean look on the one hand it's not an invalid question on the other it doesn't the the only part of it that i really that that really gives me pause now through the prism of of sort of the, the cultural mores of 2019. Yeah, is is less that we spend all this time with him and he's offed immediately upon arrival to the hotel, and more. This is the sole person of color in the movie who who, like well, you say, seems set up to do so much more, and then is offed in such an unceremonial fashion, which I think is a really effective shock in the movie but it's just yeah we got we 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 got one, this one person of color in the right entire but thing. also like now that you bring it and we're gonna we're gonna get back to our talking about the ending in a second but like now that you talk about that and i was i was debating whether i even wanted to discuss it on the show but like him being the only person of color in this movie and then uh, as he's on his way you have a scene where jack and the uh the uh, his the other character are like your your boy is calling out the n word yeah and he's like n word except they don't say n word they say hard r n word um and I'm like why why is this <laughs> happening and so, so like now at the point that he shows up and gets an axe to the chest it is officially a hate crime <laughs> it's not that he. Is just like he's. Uh, you're not it, wrong. And it's like it's it's like, in that moment, it became about this idea that uh, Danny is trying to replace his father with a fucking black man, <laughs> and his father ain't having none of it. So, uh, that's fair. So uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, here's here's. Uh, I don't know how much of this is intentional, but I do think the the fate of O'Halloran in the movie 
potentially ties into a, a lot of the sort of call them fan theories surrounding right. the movie and what what Kubrick might have been gesturing towards that isn't overt. And again, I don't. It doesn't make it feel less weird. Um, I do think I do think it was a cho- obviously it's an intentional choice. They made the choice to change the, the ending of the book in that respect. But I do believe that he was aware enough to understand the choice he was making. And I right. do believe it was made intentionally, not necessarily because it, it feeds this, you know, he's, it's really about the genocide of native Americans or whatever, you know, like not right. even necessarily for that reason, but it, it, you got to think he's clearly saying something right. And because it is not explicitly clear what he's trying to say, people have taken that like among many things in the movie, they've taken that and they've sort of grafted meaning onto it, which we'll talk about some of these in a second. Now let's get back around to the other major, major deviation from the book in the third act, which is in the book, if I recall correctly, towards the end, like right near the end, Jack is able to sort of overcome the demonic influence just enough to send Wendy and Danny and and O'Halloran, who's still alive, basically send them off and he blows the boiler in the basement of the hotel and the hotel is destroyed. Yeah. Does not happen in the movie. In the movie, as we've just been discussing, O'Halloran is uh, offed very suddenly and unceremoniously. Uh, uh, Wendy and Danny escape on their own. Jack freezes to death in the hedge maze. The hotel is still standing. And we have this, of course, it's a very iconic shot of this long, slow push into the photo. And you see it's, yeah, July 4th, 1921, I think. And Jack yeah. is there with... Uh, every everybody in the hotel at this grand ball right in the front. Right. Okay, so now we're back here. Talking about uh, the ambiguity of that ending, what does it mean? So there is the theory that you can go with, which is he dies in the hedge maze and is sort of absorbed by the hotel. There was, I believe, a scene that was in one version of the movie after Wendy and Danny escape where they're essentially told we couldn't find his body. So if they couldn't find a body... If he actually did die, then he must have been absorbed into the hotel, or maybe he didn't die. Whatever. It was like it was like it was one layer of ambiguity too many, so they excised that scene. Okay. There's another theory, and this theory is propped up by by a number of details, some of which might just be simple simple errors within the text of the movie. But Stanley Kubrick was so so meticulous and detail oriented that it's hard to buy. These were just mistakes he didn't catch. So. There is that theory that you alluded to, which is maybe he's like a reincarnation of a different person that was affiliated with the hotel. So a lot of people have pointed out that when Ullman at the beginning in the job interview tells Jack what happened at the hotel with the last caretaker, Mm -hmm. uh, Grady, he tells him the, the story of Charles Grady, who chopped up his wife and daughters with an axe after going crazy in the hotel. Right. When Jack is talking to the vision of Grady at the hotel, the vision introduces himself as Delbert Grady. Right. Now, it's entirely possible that the man's full name is Charles Delbert Grady or some variation thereof. Right. A lot of people suggest it is also possible, and there's nothing in the movie that explicitly refutes this, that maybe Delbert is was sort of the version of Grady that 
that predates Charles Grady, right? Like there was always a version of Grady that was somehow drawn to the hotel. Yeah. So Charles Grady, who murdered his wife and children with an axe, could be sort of a part of like a descendant, part of the same lineage, uh, falling prey to the same uh, forces, whether external or internal, right? Being driven to the same violent acts. Yeah. By the same token, there may well have been a Jack Torrance that was there, at, was the caretaker of the hotel in the 20s, just the same way that the Grady vision says you've always been the caretaker. Or maybe he hasn't always been the caretaker, but he's he's always been there the same way that Grady has always, quote-unquote, been there. There's, right. there's always a Grady, there's always a Jack Torrance, and they will always be drawn back to this place uh, for reasons supernatural or otherwise, for reasons literal or metaphorical. Right. So there's that theory as well. Um, and again, there's nothing in the movie that ex- explicitly refutes that possibility. Yeah. That's true. And I also, like, there's also, uh, if this was made today, I think that there's a chance that uh, it would have turned out that every time he went back into the bar area and it was, like, full of people, then it was actually the previous Jack. And he was, he, he, so we were seeing... Things from different timelines, like in Westworld. Spoilers for season one of Westworld. That's right. Um, ooh. I do wonder, now, when this movie originally came out, it wasn't tremendously well received. It was right. only a little bit later the the it was very rightly reappraised and is now hailed as a masterpiece along with every other movie this dude made. Right. Uh, but uh, I do wonder if it was released today, because, you know, today's audiences are really, they get real pedantic online and they really desperately need every single little detail of everything explained uh explicitly how it all works and stuff yeah but like the number of like you know the the shining 10 burning wtf questions we have after watching the movie and it would just be but except it would be like 500 burning wtf questions right just be page after page after page you'd have to click through each one as a slideshow so i feel like most of them up. would be who's the bare face man oh my god yes <laughs> Uh, one of the one of the best things in any movie is that uh, uh, one of the visions that that the the poor family has in this hotel uh, is th- there's this long shot of an open doorway and there's like a furry like a guy in like a bear dog suit with a mask who seems to be blowing a dude in a tuxedo right and no context is given yep no context is needed, frankly. I don't need... If you explain this to me, it's just going to ruin it. I want to embrace the mystery of this wonderful, wonderful occurrence. Because, like, what is that? I don't even know that there are theories about that one. Like, I don't know what that could mean. I mean, I mean, I feel like it was a... Uh, the. I feel like it was Stanley Kubrick's uh, take on homosexuality. And he was a figurative bear. Because, you know, a bear in the... Uh, in that community is someone who is like larger, has is more hairy. So it's the the like terminology bear, but he made it physical. Do you know what I mean? No. Oh, are you not familiar <laughs> with the term bear? No, I'm I'm familiar. That's not where you lost me. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I feel like it was Stanley Kubrick's take on uh, homosexuality, and he's saying that it is scary. Uh, one could say that Stanley Kubrick is homophobic. I thought that might be what uh, what you were getting at. Uh, yes. And one could say that the elevators 
uh, are Stanley Kubrick's take on uh, a woman's menstrual cycle. You could say that he is sexist because every, it's scary. Oh, you I see, like, it's I like scary. that it's not it's not his treatment of Shelley Duvall that makes you inclined to peg him as sexist. It's you. It's you. Just like a fan of The Shining reading way into what the visuals might symbolize. You know, and uh, all the, the, the skeletons in the ballroom, they're like death because death is scary. You see? Yep, I too yes. theorize that that is what the skeletons <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else she saw. I think that's it. Uh, it like, those were the main ones. I... <laughs> Okie doke. So, <laughs> um, anyway, so we're going to talk about the assorted theories. Yes. Um, anyway, what do you got? Well, all right. So one of the one of the big ones is, uh, and again, we're not going to go all the way down these rabbit holes. We're no, just gonna, I mean we're just, just gonna like hit broad strokes. Yeah, one of the big ones is that the entire story is a metaphor, an allegory for the genocide of Native Americans. Okay. Uh, the the presence of a great amount of Native American decor in the movie Native American iconography pops up uh, and play, whether it's, you know, uh, big art pieces uh, in the the sort of grand rooms or little bits of iconography on food packages in the pantry and stuff. Yeah. Uh, The fact that, uh, when Jack is throwing the ball around, he is, uh, the people go, okay, he's throwing the ball sort of at the Native American art. Like, I mean, really like stuff like that. Yeah. Um, stuff like, well, he's going at, at his family with an ax and an ax kind of looks like a tomahawk. Like, re- like that's the face you're making kind of. Now, okay. if you watch, if you watch room 237, they actually make a stronger case for this interpretation than I have the energy or time to make right now. Right. It is genuinely fascinating. I don't know. I don't know that I buy that all of that is there at the same time. The abundance of Native American decor in the movie is clearly an intentional choice. There's that line early in the movie where uh, Ullman is talking about how they had to, like early on with the hotel, they had to fend off a number of Native American attacks. There's a lot of Native American symbology and references that do stand out somewhat conspicuously if you really take a look at it. Right. Do I think that it was necessarily a very intentional, broad allegory for the genocide of Native Americans? I don't know, man. (laughs) I ain't Stanley Kubrick. Right. There was another theory in much the same vein. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, one of the things people point to is the musical selections in the movie. Um, Kubrick, and this part is true, Kubrick was very uh, obsessed with the Holocaust insofar as like he really wanted to make sort of like the Holocaust movie. I went a bunch of years ago, a bunch of years ago, probably like five years ago at this point, the LACMA had a really awesome, the LA County Museum of Art had a really awesome Stanley Kubrick exhibit. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you would see like uh, actual script pages with his notes on it. You'd see a bunch of cameras and lenses he owned. You'd see a bunch of props and costumes from his movies. They had the giant camera from Barry Lyndon that they, this massive camera that they needed to shoot the whole thing in natural light. You had his Napoleon library because he was also obsessed with Napoleon and mm-hmm. for a long time was trying to make a Napoleon movie. But you also get uh, a bunch of uh, so, so this collection of information or part of a collection of information he had about the Holocaust, a bunch of Holocaust research he had done. And okay. I think he was getting ready to make this movie 
in the 90s and then steven spielberg made schindler's list and dude was like fuck uh <laughs> but I, I think he if he had lived long enough he probably would have would have taken a run at that and we probably would have gotten a napoleon movie one day from him as well right but uh they talk about how because he's got this obsession if you look for that in the movie too, like this could also be a, a sort of Holocaust allegory. There's another uh, theory that people have, which is uh, a broader theory that people point to The Shining as like, here's all the clues, here's Kubrick confessing. So you've heard the, con- the conspiracy theory about how the moon landing was faked, right? I've heard it, yes. So have you also heard, uh, as part of this theory, the footage that we've seen is is not only faked, but that they brought in Stanley Kubrick to help them fake this footage? I've heard of it, yes. Okay, so a lot of people point to different elements in The Shining, and they say, well, this is a, this is a clue, and this is Kubrick very quietly confessing to being a part of that. So little things like, for example, uh, the, the changing of the room number. Room 237 in the movie was, I believe, room 217. Yes. In the book. It's like, okay, that's interesting. It seems like an arbitrary thing to change. Why'd he change that? So so the theory that people have is that he changed it to 237 because, go with me on this, because the moon is approximately 237,000 miles from Earth. Okay. Okay, now, it is not 237,000 miles from Earth. It's more like, I, I looked this up, I forget the exact number, but it's more like 283,000-something miles right. from Earth. But they're like, sure, 237, close enough. We faked the moon landing. Um, I mean, could just inter- to interject the truth, yeah. uh, it's, they changed the number because that is an actual hotel and they didn't want people to feel like it was yes. a scary room. Right. The, the exteriors, um, a lot of the exteriors of the Overlook was actually on uh, studio lots that they actually built the exteriors, but they did use an actual hotel for some of the exteriors. And yes, they did actually have a room 217 and they said, we don't want people to think we're a goblin hotel. Right. But then of course it had the opposite effect where apparently room 217 is the room that is actually most requested. Right. In, which because people are it freaks. Yeah. People want to see the, the man bear blow the guy in the tuxedo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so people, people point to things like that. They point to how at one point in the movie, Danny is wearing uh, an Apollo 11 sweater right you know and they say like this is this is kubrick confessing he's letting us know we never went to the moon just come here come here do you think we went to the moon bullshit you're wrong yeah that's wow that's what every uh reddit thread sounds like in really tiny font right yes because you have to get real close that's the only way you believe things (laughs) um i we are running out of time, and I feel like I, I have my fill of crazy theories. Yeah, there you, there are a couple of uh, little things that I just think are uh, are are interesting that I I wanted to hit real fast. Uh, one, this was not the very first movie to use the Steadicam. Uh, the there are a couple of movies that came out uh, I think a couple of years prior to this that had had used it, but the Steadicam was very new technology at the time, and you had the inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, working on the movie uh, using the technology that he had invented. And he talks about how uh, working with Kubrick, Kubrick was able to help him refine uh, and adapt his approach uh, to using his own technology and helping him discover different, more versatile ways to implement using that technology. And of course, the Steadicam is now one of the most ubiquitous uh, pieces of filmmaking technology that there is. And the other 
story that I think is uh, kind of fun. So, uh, and, and Vivian Kubrick talks about this uh, on the audio commentary, I believe, for her uh, half-hour documentary that's on the physical releases. The door at the end of the movie. Yeah. That Jack chops through right before, you know, here's Johnny, which is the most iconic moment from the movie. Apparently uh, improvised that moment by, yeah. uh, by Jack Nicholson. The door that he is chopping through is a real door. You say, well, yeah, of course it's a real door. I, I saw it. What else would that be? By that, I mean... It was an actual sturdy door, not a piece of set dressing. And the reason they had to do that was because uh, Jack Nicholson had been a a volunteer fire marshal and firefighter in the California Air National Guard. And he was going through every set dressing door like like it was paper, Mm. like he was just going through them way too fast. And so they had to basically bring in this big, sturdy door so they could actually have him get through the thing in in uh, a span of time that was greater than about two seconds and i think that's a fun story yeah that is a fun story uh so yeah uh i, I guess uh, we there's so and the thing is okay we've talked about a bunch and you could ring another four hours of conversation out of this movie i i, re- I highly recommend folks i tari i recommend to you and i recommend to anyone listening if you're a fan of the shining and you haven't checked out room 237 Check that documentary out because good gravy does it go all the way down about four rabbit holes and then defiantly sit there cross-armed and cross-legged refusing the rope. You're trying to help him out of the hole and it's like, fuck it. I'm happy here. This is where I die. Mm-hmm. It's it's fun. It's bonkers. And, and like I say, when we talk about these crazy theories, do I buy them all? No, I don't. But if it was if it was any filmmaker but Kubrick, I'd say everybody is just being crazy. Everybody is just uh, putting on bigger and bigger tinfoil hats. Right. But because the dude was so known for being almost psychotically meticulous, I have a hard time believing that anything that is there, whether there's deeper meaning or not, anything that is on screen in one of his movies is there intentionally. If there was one filmmaker I could maybe, maybe buy was thinking this deep where all of these details uh, really did add up to something this this massive as like, here's what I'm low key trying to say with this movie and stuff. Like he'd be the one guy where I'd be like, you know what? There's a non-zero chance of this. <laughs> okay. Um, guys, if you want to discuss your theories about The Shining with Lex Michael, you should do it. Where can they find you, Lex? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. And you can find me at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. But most importantly, you could find this podcast at Missing Outcast. M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S. T, and that's where you can let us know what you thought about The Shining. Uh, let us know your theories. Let us know what you thought about Shelley Duvall's performance. Let us know what you think about Jack Nicholson's faces. Like, let us know, cause we want to hear them. Um, but until we do, this has been the retrospective that's introspective, and now you have a new perspective. And every time you bust in here with your concise well-crafted sign-off you break my concentration and it takes me time to get back to where i was
Well, I'll just take my eggs somewhere else then. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go watch the man bear blow the guy in the tuxedo. I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna go now. <laughs>